0: Getting back in shape now, you've got a whole new attitude To get the most from life, you know what you've got to do Join the cardiac My name is John Shaman, and this is the Shaman MD Podcast. First, I would like to introduce my guest today, Brian Skerritt, and then I will introduce the discussion topic. Brian is a long-term expert in a field that is of utmost importance to heart patients, and frankly, everyone with a heart and maybe even more so to those accused of not having a heart. Brian has been known to me and my clinic for several decades, first as a patient and then as a valuable adjunct to our therapeutic team. Brian, could you tell us how it was that you became a patient at the clinic and then give us a bit of background relating to your occupational life journey?
1: Almost by accident, uh, I was sent to your clinic to get a uh, ECG because I was taking a group of people to the, Everest, to the Everest, to the Iraqis for a climb, and it was on team building. and my, my task was to monitor them and see how cooperative versus competitive they were in working with each other, which was part of my work at the time. And so uh, the, the the organizers required that I had a ECG before I went to the uh, this climb and then I went to talk to you and I was impressed with what you had to offer but I had no need for your services until about uh, six or eight years later uh, then I decided to go and talk to you about uh, the fact that I had heart disease in my family and I wanted to head it off at the pass and uh, more or less have been going ever since although not continuously. Maybe you'd like to know about how how I got into that field. Um, I started off when I, I went to school in Nova Scotia to uh, Acadia University. And I, I wanted to become a, well, uh, at first it was a football. I was interested in football and got invited to the Montreal Elowitz camp to try out. But uh, uh, they were a lot bigger than I was. And I decided to go into teaching and coaching in a high school, which I did. I taught math and phys ed. And I was very interested in counseling children and, and uh, adolescents, and, and eventually I wound up doing a lot of work with the parents uh, on the issues that they had with their kids. So I went back to school and got my master's and uh, started doing marriage and family counseling. Enjoyed it. Uh, but that expanded too into working with uh, supervisors and managers because uh, they would hire me to teach basically their leaders and their managers not to be jerks because you know, sometimes it goes to their head and they, they just don't relate well to the people that are under in their charge. So that was a big part of my work was training and development and, uh, and working with these uh, group leaders. Eventually, uh, I also became involved in employee assistance programs, which was a way of combining my counseling background and the business background because the companies would hire me then to provide support for their employees who are having trouble with addictions or with psychological problems, or financial problems, or anything that would detract them from their work, and we would provide confidential counseling to them, and uh, eventually that grew across Canada and into the states and into Mexico. So it was it was a very busy uh, practice, and it was combining both the the counseling and the the business side of it, the corporate training, Mm -hmm. which was very enjoyable. And I did that until I was 74 (laughs) and then retired.
0: A bit of background for those not familiar with my clinic. In 1978 in Southwestern Ontario, Canada, I founded the Ontario Aerobics Center and set up the first private practice in Canada in cardiac rehabilitation and sports medicine. The first 12 years, I would call the exercise years, as exercise was the mainstay of our program, applying all the known knowledge in the field of exercise physiology to both the heart patients in rehabilitation, as well as the patients sustaining injuries from sporting activity. The second era of 12 years included our early foray into the heart disease reversal program. Designed originally, over decades of work by Dr. Dean Ornish. The heart disease reversal program shocked the world in that it scientifically validated the possibility of actually reversing atherosclerotic disease in the arteries, a disease that accounted for more deaths than all other diseases in the modern world combined. This program is comprised of four components an hour of exercise daily, a very low fat essentially vegetarian diet, stress management practice daily, and group support. A detrimental impact on our lives, coming in various shapes and forms, is a sense of loss of control. The loss of control can impact many aspects of our lives, including our occupational endeavors, our health and well-being, our social connections, and even threats to our civilization as we know it. Whereas modern medicine was and is taking away a sense of control over our health and well-being, this reversal program, a difficult lifestyle program, started actually giving patients a new hope, new choices, and a regaining of sense of control over health and well-being. Assuming that each of these components bears equal weight, the stress management and group support, both previously not well recognized and certainly not well medically dealt with, now comprise half of a program that has been scientifically validated to have the potential of reversing probably the most significant medical scourge in the modern world. Brian, how did you and how do you feel about such a significant imposition into your bailiwick regarding your potential impact on the most consequential disease process in our world.
1: When I I heard about uh, your clinic and what Dr. Ornish had done, and in particular heard about the group support and the stress management, uh, that that intrigued me right away because we do have this tendency to slot uh, into physical versus psychological or two separate entities and and how they overlap is is immense, and how how our uh, emotional health affects our physical health is is huge. So, getting people to acknowledge uh, what fears they have, what concerns they have, what sadness they have, and as you have pointed out on many occasions, uh, we as men tend not to be very good at acknowledging. I'm going through some scary stuff, or I'm going through some. Uh, I'm really pissed off about something. These are things that uh, men in particular don't, uh, aren't comfortable acknowledging. So part of our group support, which which by the way is designed after the Ornish plan that they did in California, uh, the the stuff that we're doing with group support is really getting people to get connected first with their own emotions and uh, be able to learn how to uh, experience or acknowledge what it is that you're feeling and then second to be able to express it to some to other people in, in a group and not feel like they're they're going to be criticized and the whole idea behind this is it's a safe surrounding and people can say what's on their mind and express their emotions and it, it's okay so uh, that's a big part of it uh, the second part of it is to get in, to get people to tune into others' feelings. And that's where sometimes people uh, fall off the mark as well, that they're, uh, maybe they're, they are not tuned in, they don't have that empathy that they need to tune into the other person that they're, with whom they're dealing. And that's one of the things that I think that would you, your listeners or your viewers would be interested in is uh, a statement by Richie Davidson from the University of Wisconsin. And he said that some of these things are not just, they're not happiness and things like resilience. These are not traits. These are things that you can actually learn as a skill. We can learn to, to bounce back. We can learn to deal with loneliness. We can learn to deal with our emotions much more effectively. It hasn't been part of our curriculum. And we, as we try to incorporate that into our sessions, either the group support or uh, stress management.
0: And then along came COVID-19. Our anxiety levels increased exponentially. Our social networks decimated overnight. Our sense of control beaten into the ground. Brian, how has COVID-19 affected you? I know I have called on you to help with patients particularly troubled. What advice might you have?
1: that kind of responds to what we, what I was just mentioning about people not expressing themselves, and as I said men are more uh, inclined to keep them keep things bottled up, but women too. The first step is to acknowledge how, what, what's happening as this is going on with us. Uh, some people don't recognize uh, you can't go through this experience that we've had over the last four months and not be somewhat stressed or anxious about it. Uh, if, you, if you do, if you are not uh, stressed or anxious, you probably don't have a pulse because <laughs> there is some anxiety that comes with the, with the territory. Uh, so just getting some folks to uh, acknowledge and say, here's, and getting a chance to talk about it, uh, maybe first to themselves and then second to acknowledge, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm concerned if it's not for my well-being, maybe some of us are old enough now we're not as concerned, uh, about our our uh, financial well-being but there are a lot of young people who are very concerned about where they're going to get their jobs a lot of people in school thinking about should I be in school Is just something that am I wasting my time so the COVID uh, situation is, is thrown a complete curve unparalleled we've never had anything anything like this before the second part of it though that's the kind of the downside the other part is there are some great opportunities here. And, and I would say the same to you, John, that the, there, were, there are some great opportunities for your clinic. That you have a chance to pause and rethink and where are we gonna go now? Well, how are we gonna use this time differently than we have in the past? And there are some, you know, that, oh, that old saying about opportunity and uh, the Chinese uh, pictograph that says, uh, it's danger and, uh, it was a danger and opportunity. A danger and crisis is makes put close together to make opportunity. So there may be some opportunities here that we we don't want to miss. All the stuff about uh, the racism in in the states and in Canada, that's an opportunity we should take advantage of. It's a it's a new world. We are forging some new new territory that we have not been into before. So it's a little frightening. We have to be pretty resilient and brave and courageous to face it. Does that speak to your question?
0: You've certainly touched on some of the key points. In order for our audience to understand what the impact has been on our patients, I should really mention a few things about our program, which is quite unique in the world. We've developed a number of technologies and methods that are kind of unique to us. One of them is that we do an electrocardiogram on every single patient at the height of exercise. This gives a tremendous reassurance to the patient. We also have lectures after all the cardiac classes every week and we have group support sessions. And these lectures and group support sessions which provide the patient with considerable reassurance are now not possible and the loss is a tremendous one. I'd like to switch gears and have a look at a very common medical problem that occurs really in all countries, in all age groups, and really associated with good physical health or sometimes not good physical health, and this topic is depression. In my career I would say that every few months a new article is published on the connection between heart disease and depression. And indeed, the question might be, which comes first, heart disease or depression? A few statistics that are somewhat staggering is that depressed people are twice as likely to develop heart disease. On the other hand, patients with heart disease are more likely to be depressed At any given time, one in five patients with coronary heart disease has a major depression. Depression does not appear to be related to the severity of heart disease. Depression significantly increases mortality in heart patients. So Brian, I know that in your work of counseling and doing support sessions with patients who are depressed, you probably have some insight into this. And I wonder if you could make a few comments about depression.
1: In uh, in the 90s, 90, early 90s, my business partner uh, had uh, a stay of uh, depression, clinical depression that just about took him out. So I had some firsthand dealings with it. And it was very, very tough. Here was a, a man who was very capable, kind of the one that ran things, the leader in the family, the one that ran things. And he was brought down uh, as low as you can go, uh, uh, questioning whether or not he wanted to stick around. And uh, he went, he did not want to go to uh, the regular uh, psychiatrist and psychologist. He he went the other routes, uh, food and and changed his diet and changed supplements and so on. But eventually he had to find the right psychiatrist and the right uh, drug and the right dosage before he, had, he he came back out of his depression. Now that was him. Uh, what I learned about it was that one of the bit, most important things you ha- to do when you have depression, when you have a bout of depression, is to get off your ass. You have to move. You, you even when that's the last thing you feel like doing, you feel like curling up in a ball. But the more you, the the best prescription is exercise. Move go for walks, uh, even do, do some yoga. Uh, that apparently is the leading uh, cure for, for depression. But there are some people that clearly will need to go and, and speak with their psychiatrist and get some medication. Um, for our purposes, for the people that I talk to, it seems like some of them are, they may be not to the state of clinical depression, but they're certainly in a depressed state and just having someone, having a community to belong to, makes a big difference. And I think your, your clinic, John, when they go, come there, even the, the ones that don't come to our sessions, they're still going to those, those uh, meetings and having that sense of camaraderie. Uh, some of us go to breakfast afterward, there's a, a good feeling that comes out of that. And that counts for a great deal. And I think it lifts people out of some of that, those down feelings, those depressed
0: feelings. Talking about exercise and depression, you remind me of a program or various programs that I remember hearing about in the late 70s and into the 80s in the United States. And in order to understand um, our type of healthcare system, I should give a bit of an overview. Uh, We have, uh, throughout my medical career, uh, since the late 70s, had a socialized medical system where the government is responsible for the cost of healthcare. And of course, this has good aspects as well as not so good aspects. We have very long waiting lists and many things are uh, not as readily available as they would be in the United States, uh, as long as one has the finances to pay for it. And at that time, they had health clinics treating depression in the United States and nothing like that was available in Canada so the province of Ontario Ministry of Health actually paid for these and it was a very expensive venture patients with depression went down to these resorts might be the best description and the patients that attended were required to exercise many times a day morning afternoon evening They were fed well, but they didn't have, they didn't take any medication. And apparently they had some pretty good success. Unfortunately, because of the cost, our government ceased coverage of these. And I don't know if these facilities still exist. I imagine they do. I'd like to look at a particular aspect of stress. And the question really is, why does stress not affect all people in the same way? We've all seen a scenario where two individuals are doing exactly the same job, with the same stress in the same environment, yet one seems to be thriving, while the other is close to nervous breakdown. Why can there be such a significant difference when the environment and the jobs are essentially identical? Various experts have suggested that loneliness, isolation, disconnection, and something called spiritual loneliness might be a reason. So, Brian, I wonder if you could give your opinion regarding the effect of loneliness on the potential impact of stress.
1: We, uh, one of our clients at one stage, uh, they were um, air traffic controllers. And to me, that kind of represents a fairly stressful job. But we would have people who were in side by side. Uh, One person was completely stressed out and the other person, not not the least. So basically what you were describing. And as far as I can determine it, I think it's not, it's a little too simplistic to say uh, it's one, one cause. I believe it has to do with our physiological makeup, you know, what, What's in our system, our background, our family background, how we're what ideas we're raised with, and 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 basically how flexible our thinking is. Um, what is surprising to me is that people can sometimes go along for a certain period of time and not seem to be bothered, but eventually uh, it 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 throws them off the off their game. Um, I think it was. Uh, I can't remember the fellow's name. Hans Selye was the Mm -hmm. Canadian expert on in the '70s, and he talked about uh, it's it's one thing to have a a reaction to a stressful situation, and totally different to have something that is not maybe not nearly as stressful but ongoing, perpetual, and that's the kind of thing that right now with the COVID and and other types of sometimes it's a job that is perpetually eating away at somebody, that causes problems for many people, maybe not for all. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why it's for more for some than for others, but I do believe that has a lot to do with the, the support that they have at home, the relationship they have, and how much they speak about it, how much they can uh, put in words, Here, here's what's happening to me. Most, uh, most of the men that I know, uh, I used to do a lot of work with police officers too, and they, they would bottle up. They wouldn't uh, they wouldn't talk about what was bothering them. They and I, I remember talking to them at one point about uh, the fear reaction, and they just, what do you mean fear? We don't have fear. Uh, it was like <laughs> they couldn't acknowledge that we have fear, and which was stupid or silly. But but that's that was for the the culture didn't allow them to express something like that. So, a lot of it has to do with the surrounding culture.
0: You mentioned Hans Selye, which reminds me that he was a Canadian and he was still alive doing his research in his laboratory in McGill University. And he did research studies to see the impact of stress and some of these were done on white mice. And what they did is they stressed them considerably and compared them to mice that did not get stressed. And they operated on them and looked at the insides and found out that there was indeed a a physical difference in the stressed mice in that they had enlarged adrenal glands. The adrenal gland sits on top of the kidney and due to Hans Selye's original work is now recognized as the stress gland because it puts out the hormone adrenaline, also called epinephrine. And this is the stress hormone that is secreted to allow us to react to stress. Our big problem is the fact that when we are under stress, we are not appropriately able to react because stress prepares us for fighting and fleeing. And for most of us, this is not something that is appropriate when we're under stress. I'd like to explore a few concepts relating to group support. When I did my training under Dr. Ornish in the early 90s in San Francisco, he commented and made a considerable deal out of understanding the difference between a thought and a feeling. He stated that men can express and understand thoughts but cannot get in touch and really talk about their feelings. He also stated that it was important to get in touch with one's feelings and also to become a fluent listener. I believe you call that an active listener. It was necessary and beneficial to provide an environment to reduce isolation and to experience the feeling of being connected seems to be part of the therapy. This is not uh, psychological or psychiatric group therapy per se. What thoughts might you have regarding thoughts and feelings?
1: One of the very common issues that I dealt with when I was talking to couples who were having some clashes was that the men, uh, one would express something that was going on at home while they were at work, uh, if they were at home, women working at home or being at home with the kids, uh, the men would jump in and try to solve the problem. And the women often did not want that. They did not want someone to solve the problem for them. They just wanted to be heard. And that that was a sore issue very, very frequently. So I, I, one of the things that happens in our group support is that we have to lay out kind of ground rules or guidelines for people because when they get there, these are often people who are in businesses and, and uh, we're problem solvers. And, they, and when somebody expresses that they're, that they're having some concern about their health or about their family, oftentimes the other times one other fellows want to jump in and say, well, why don't you do this or why don't you do that? Which is the last thing we, we want them to do. So we have to kind of retrain them from trying to be the problem solvers there and just to listen. Just to be—that's what you mentioned—the act of listening. Just to be fully engaged and see what they're feeling when they when they hear these uh, people expressing some emotions themselves. When they first come in, one of our first exercises is to get people to sit quietly, and uh, we do some some mindfulness practice too. And that's unusual for people; they they don't have the most people have not had experience doing that mindfulness this practice or meditation so just being quiet and paying attention to what's going on in their body and and what's going on in their thinking processes and uh, if we get ask them to just in get in tune with their feelings right now what, what are you feeling right now uh, then to, then at that after a couple of minutes of that they can actually express here's what I'm feeling and that's an unusual process for, for many, many people to acknowledge, here's what's going on. It's, it's, a, it's a heartwarming to see some of the people be heard for the first time because you can see them kind of light up and it's, it, it's very important to them to be heard and that, that often doesn't happen uh, at home or, or at work or wherever they are. They, they may keep a lot of their stuff to themselves.
0: I'd like to bring up some further data regarding a sense of isolation. Data has shown that two to five times a mortality rate exists, independent of all other risk factors when people feel isolated. Isolation leads to stress and ultimately to illness. Intimacy leads to healing. This is the cornerstone of what you do, Brian, and I thought we should drive that home.
1: Absolutely. So I, and even the, the, the lack of skin contact, the lack of a hug or a tap or, you know, that makes a big difference as well.
0: I remember when I attended the Dean Ornish workshop regarding reversal of heart disease in the early 90s in San Francisco, how I felt somewhat uncomfortable with all of the regular ongoing hugging between virtually everybody and it was something to get used to, and it seemed to be quite therapeutic, and certainly I would imagine that now with COVID-19, they would be quite devastated.
1: I grew up with that, where, where hugging was just a normal process, and we would, we would hug. And, and with men, you know, they sometimes you see the guys playing hockey, they slap the ass of the other guy, but, but uh, my family, we were huggers. So it was really quite normal for me to be hugging. And I have difficulty now (laughs) backing up.
0: Right. And that's maybe why you entered in this field. I'd like to introduce the topic of personality, as it has been determined that certain personality traits increase the chance of developing heart disease. And some of the traits include anger, hostility, cynicism, aggression, perfectionism, being a loner, being short-fused, being overly impatient, having a difficulty expressing feelings and being overly competitive. And the data shows that the more of these you have, the more likely you probably will develop heart disease. I wonder, Brian, if you have any comments in this regard.
1: I'm not sure it's changing their personality, but I, I guess it's teaching them some skills. I believe that we can learn some skills in how to deal with crisis situations and how to deal with, I used to say to my groups, uh, I can predict the future. Here's what the future is going to be. Good news, followed by bad news, followed by good news, followed by bad news. And that's the cycle that we, we live. So Rather than hope that we're never going to get any bad news, we better learn how to deal with the bad news when it comes along. We have to learn to hit that, uh, that curveball <laughs> when it comes in. So that, that's a, it's a skill. And I think I don't call that changing your personality. I, th- I think it's, uh, I guess, maybe somebody who is uh, easy to anger can learn to respond in a different way. We we don't we can uh, we can go through that process rather than do the knee jerk reaction when somebody says something that normally would fire them off. We can actually think that through, and respond rather than react, and we can respond in a different way. But that does take, take some training. It doesn't. It's not automatic for any of us probably. So I I spend a lot of time on that that whole process of. Well, uh, that's part of the mindfulness practice, too, that if you can be mindful when that jerk bumps you on the subway or cuts you off in, uh, in, in, in the street, and then you, you, you're ready to plow the guy or say some unpleasant words, and then you realize that he's uh, on a crutches or he's carrying a white cane, suddenly you have a different reaction. And we have to rethink and have that capacity to rethink in any situation rather than react, respond appropriately. And we can can do better at that.
0: Brian, you have been dedicated to your field. You have helped thousands of patients. You've been a great help to me, my clinic, and my patients. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. If anyone in the audience has particular questions relating to Brian's expertise, please post these and I'll do my best to provide an answer and possibly invite Brian back for another episode in the future. Thank you for tuning in. You're getting back in shape now. You got a whole new